Good morning, church. Welcome to week four of our series through the Gospel of Matthew that we're calling the one we've waited for. If you were here last week or if you got to tune in, then you might remember Pastor Ryan walked us through Jesus' temptation in the wilderness found in Matthew chapter 4. Today we're going to skip chapters 5 through 7 and go right into the stories that begin in chapter 8. And the reason behind that's really simple. Chapters 5 through 7 contain Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And because we have covered much of that material in previous series, and because we're trying to get through the Gospel of Matthew by Easter, we decided it made the most sense to skip it in this series. So let me just go ahead and read you the passage we've arrived at in chapter 8 of Matthew's Gospel. We're in Matthew 8, verses 1 through 4. When he, Jesus, came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. So I think it's obvious this is a healing story. More broadly, we could categorize it as a miracle story. As a matter of fact, it is the very first specific detailed story in Matthew's gospel of Jesus himself performing a miracle. And it begins a string of 10 such stories of miracles that Jesus performed that lasts all the way through chapter 9. So since we're here, we thought this would be a really good opportunity to do something a little differently this morning. All of us come to the Bible with what you might call nearsighted, blurry vision. And, and the reason for that is because, on one hand, we're so far removed from the time and the culture the Bible was written, but also because of our own culture and our own personality and weaknesses that are near to us. And so what, what I want to do this morning is not so much tell you what you should think about this specific miracle story. What I really want to do is give you a pair of glasses, a lens through which you can clearly see and understand and apply any and all of the miracle stories in the life of Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, and in all the other Gospels. So that's our goal today, to give you a pair of glasses. But to switch up my metaphors, I also want you to consider this passage we just started in, Matthew 8, 1 through 4, as kind of like a runway. We're, we're not going to pause here, walk around, and dig in. That's what we normally do with a, with a passage of Scripture. Instead, we're going to take off from here. We're going to fly over the entire Gospel of Matthew. And along the way, we're going to slow down, and we're going to look at different miracle stories, again, with the goal of helping you to understand all of them. And then finally, when we've completed our flyover, we're going to come in for a landing and disembark right back here in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. So we're starting here, taking off. We'll end here as well. So I say all that to say... Welcome aboard Air Severn. You're going to get tired of flying analogies very quickly, but i got a few more of them. Let me give you a map or an itinerary of where we're going today. This will be our outline. So as we're doing this flyover, we're going to see four different characteristics that, that really cover all of Jesus' miracles, and, and those four characteristics will give you a lens through which you can understand any of Jesus' miracles. So for the, for the first three characteristics, you're going to see this. We're going to kind of be, you might say, high and in the clouds. We're going to be talking about big, heady ideas. But then as we approach that fourth characteristic, we're going to get a little bit lower, a little more grounded, and start looking at specific miracle stories, all right? So one final thing before you fasten your seatbelts and return your tray table to the full upright position. 
That might be the last one. I think, I think it's fair to say, I don't, I don't generally like to make big, broad generalizations, but I think this is a fair one, that everybody that's listening to me this morning are going to fall into one of three categories and maybe a couple of these categories. Number one, you're listening this morning and you're a skeptic that really has a hard time believing in miracles at all. Second category, you're a believer of some sort who accepts miracles and you find them interesting, but you really have no immediate need or expectation of one. But thirdly, you're here and you may or may not believe in miracles, but you or someone you love could really use one right now. Wherever you fall in that spectrum, in those categories, I'm confident that the Word of God today, this teaching, has something for you. So I would just ask you to lean in and hang in there with me. I think there's going to be something beneficial for you today. So let's go ahead and and take off with our characteristic number one. Here it is. The miracles of Jesus are supernatural. Now, I realize some of you are probably thinking that's redundant. It's kind of like saying chai tea. Chai just means tea. You shouldn't say that. That's TT, right? Or pin number. The N stands for number, right? We're being redundant. Of course, miracles are supernatural. That's what they mean. But the reason why I think it's important to just be really clear about our definitions on the front end is because most of us in the course of everyday life don't use the word miracle like that. We, we talk about the miracle of childbirth. We talk about the 1980 miracle on ice hockey game in the Olympics, or we talk about, it's a miracle, I made it on time, right? That's how we tend to use that language. And and although all of those things might be surprising or against the odds or difficult, they all still follow the processes and laws of the natural physical world, right? It's just a lot easier, and it sounds a lot cooler to say, it's a miracle, I made it on time, rather than say, it's really surprising but completely explainable according to the laws of nature that I made it on time. Thank you. The 9 a.m. didn't laugh at that as much as you did. I'm already impressed with you. So, <laughs> so what bottom line here is when we talk about Jesus' miracles, we're talking about the literal sense of the word. So here's the definition of his miracles. They are actions and events that clearly do not follow the normal processes of nature, and so they involve some kind of power beyond the natural world. That's why we say super natural. They're beyond the natural world. And we actually see this in the three Greek words that are used to describe as miracles. If, if you have your Bible translation, very rarely probably do it, does any English translation just say miracles. Usually, they, they translate three Greek words that are translated powers or mighty works, signs, and wonders. And if, if you put all those together, perfect definition of what Jesus is doing, because what He's doing involves power beyond this world, and like signs, what He's doing points to something beyond themselves, and they cause people to pay attention and to wonder at what He's doing. And if you think about it, that really helps us understand why miracles are, by their nature, rare. They don't happen all the time. Sometimes people push back. If miracles are real, why don't we see more of them? And the answer to that is, if they were commonplace, if they just happened all the time, people would cease to pay attention to them, and therefore they would cease to function as they were designed as signs and pointers and things to make us wonder. So now that we've established a definition, we might ask, what kind of supernatural signs, powers, and wonders do we actually see Jesus doing throughout Matthew's gospel and throughout all of the gospels. Let me just give you a quick overview before we move to characteristic number two. If you read through his gospel, here's what you'll see. You'll see Jesus healing all kinds of physical diseases, pains, deformities, and mental illnesses, setting people free from evil powers, and raising people back to life from the dead with just a word or a touch. He makes a storm at sea stop on command. He walks on water. He makes five loaves of bread and two pieces of fish, feed thousands of people, and he does it twice. 
He causes a fish to spit up a coin. He curses a fig tree so that it dies on the spot. So again, these actions of Jesus are very obviously supernatural miracles. The question, though, that now we have to ask that we've established that is, did they really happen? Can we really believe in the 21st century? Can we really believe in Jesus's miracles? That brings us to our second characteristic. So first characteristic, the miracles are supernatural. Here's the second one. The miracles of Jesus are historical and rational, which might sound odd to you. Those things may seem like two competing ideas, but, but quick history lesson to kind of get us started here. If you don't like history, just lean in with me. I'll try to make this as relevant as possible. For, for most of the centuries following Jesus's life and ministry, Christians in the Western world, people who accepted Christianity living in the Western world, had no problem believing that Jesus actually did miracles. But beginning, especially in like the, the 1700s and 1800s, during the time period that we refer to as the Enlightenment, or the scientific revolution, certain philosophers and scholars begin to reinterpret Jesus' miracles so that, on the one hand, they would say they are just outright fabrications or deceptive tricks, or on the other hand, they're just legends, metaphors, and symbols, which they weren't meant to deceive, just meant to teach us deeper things, but they didn't actually happen. So they began to reinterpret these things, and the main reason that they began to reinterpret Jesus' miracles is, is not because they saw something in the Bible to make them do that, but because during this Enlightenment period, and, and this is kind of a condensation of a lot of history for the sake of time, but during the Enlightenment, through the use of the scientific method, new technologies, new math discoveries, people began to understand that, that some things that they thought only had supernatural explanations actually have very natural explanations. And so the thinking went, if that's true for some things and lots of things, then why is it not true for all things? And so more and more people began to believe that everything in our experience could be explained naturally, scientifically, mathematically, without any need to bring up the supernatural. Therefore, in that line of thinking, Jesus' miracles had to be reinterpreted, not again because of something in the Bible itself, but because of this foundational assumption that real miracles cannot happen. The supernatural is irrational. And that's why you've probably heard this before. People like Thomas Jefferson, he infamously, he, he lived during the Enlightenment, he infamously created his own Life of Jesus book by literally cutting and pasting, no Microsoft Word, literally cutting and pasting only the parts of the Gospels that did not contain miracles. Now, we could roll our eyes at that and scoff at Thomas Jefferson, but all of us in this room and everybody listening to some degree are byproducts of this enlightenment and scientific revolution. And let me be clear before I say anything else, in many, many ways, that's a really good thing. Thank God for things like the United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Thank God for germ theory and smallpox vaccines and, and thermometers and modern flush toilets. All of those to some degree, amen, all of, the, all of the, wow, that's, we can stop. Let's take up an offering and pray. Modern flush toilets apparently is the way you get people's attention. Uh, all of those things to some degree are byproducts of the enlightenment. We thank God for them. But, but all we have to do is look around to know in experience that good and reasonable ideas can always be taken too far. So, so the question I want to pose to us is, is, have some of us taken the ideas of the enlightenment too far? So I told you we were going to get heady for a second. Just hang in there with me. I'm going to make all these things connect. So here's the big question. Is it reasonable and logical to assume that supernatural events cannot happen and therefore 
automatically reject Jesus' miracles as real historical events without even looking at the evidence? Is that a reasonable, logical thing to do? Entire university classes have been taught to debate this question. I'm no professional philosopher. Let me just give you the philosophy for dummies answer for the sake of time today. Here's an analogy I think that will make sense. If I say to you, there is no crude oil in the ground in Maryland, I think all of you would probably believe me. I mean, nobody's driving around seeing oil fields in Maryland. As a matter of fact, since 1995, they've tried to drill three holes and come up empty. All right, fair enough. But absence of evidence, you've heard this before, is not evidence of absence. Did I say that right? So, so think this through. What, what is the only way to definitively, 100% prove no oil exists in the ground in Maryland? The only way to do that is you would have to dig up every inch of soil in Maryland to prove an absolute negative claim like that. So here's what I'm saying. Just like you would have to dig up and know all of the ground in Maryland to prove an absolute negative claim like no oil exists, in the same way, you would have to dig up and have knowledge of every single moment in human history, past, present, and future, to make an absolute claim like no miracles exist. And of course, nobody has that kind of knowledge. So followers of Jesus are often criticized for for exercising blind faith. I think, though, in this case, it's actually the shoe fitting on the other foot. If, like the philosophers of the Enlightenment you reject Jesus' miracles without examining them on their own merits simply because you're assuming that miracles cannot happen, then I say this with all due respect, then you are the one exercising blind faith in a twist of irony here. So, so what I want to say is if you're here and you're skeptical, first of all, thank you for being here. Believe it or not, I am a naturally skeptical person, so thank you for being here. What I'm asking you to do, it's a very hard thing to do for at least the remainder of this teaching, is, is set aside assumptions be open-minded about the possibilities, and just let me for the next minute or so lay out some evidence for why we can believe that Jesus' miracles were real historical events. Again, we could spend a lot of time on this, but since I've got maybe 25 more minutes, let me just quickly outline a few facts. Fact number one, contrary to what some of those Enlightenment philosophers wanted to read into the text, Matthew and the other gospel writers clearly did not intend for people to interpret Jesus' miracles as metaphors. You can't read them and honestly think that's what they meant. Let me just give you one example. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus' cousin John the Baptist is sending some of his students to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Are you the one we've waited for? And I want you to hear how Jesus responds to him. This is Matthew eleven four through 5. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. Did you hear that? These men are told to go back and report what they hear and what they see. Not not metaphors of inner spiritual realities, but real, observable, physical events. Physically blind eyes being opened, physical lepers being cleansed, physically deaf ears being opened. This passage and and the others in the gospel only make sense if Matthew intended Jesus' miracles to be understood as real historical events. Fact number one. Number two, most of the miracles recorded in Matthew's gospel are also recorded in the other three, Mark, Luke, and John. And the majority of even the most skeptical non-Christian scholars agree that they were all, all four of these gospels were written within the lifetime of eyewitnesses to Jesus' life. So, think about that for a second. It would make very little sense 
to create not one, but four biographies of Jesus' life, fill them with lies about his miracles, and then start circulating them while all the eyewitnesses were around. Because the eyewitnesses would just say, you're lying, I was there. But, but what makes more sense is that these eyewitnesses really did see Jesus do miracles. And so the gospel writers had no problems putting them in their biographies and circulating them. Third, even ancient sources outside the New Testament. So that's the pushback sometimes. People will say, you're just using the Bible to prove the Bible. So let's go outside the Bible for a second. Even sources outside the church admit that Jesus performed miracles. I'll give you two examples. In the Babylonian Talmud, maybe you've heard of that, maybe you haven't, it was put together between like 150 to 450 years after Jesus lived. It took a long time to compile all these Jewish traditions. So these are Jewish traditions, not Christian In that Talmud, they claim Jesus led Israel astray through sorcery, which is an acknowledgement that he did supernatural things, but we don't believe in him, so we have to chalk it up to the devil and not to God. So there was just too much evidence to completely deny it. We've got to reinterpret it. Another example is Josephus, the Jewish historian. He was born right after Jesus, so lived around that same time, never became a Christian. He described Jesus as a doer of startling deeds. But here's the last thing I'll say, and I think this is the most important, the last fact, and then we'll move on. Jesus' miracles fit with who he claimed to be and what he claimed to do. So, so some people will say the miracle stories just make the Gospels unbelievable. I would actually say the opposite. The miracle stories make the Gospels more believable. Think about everything that Jesus claimed to be and do throughout the four Gospels. He's claiming that he is the divine Son of God sent from heaven to earth to defeat evil and sin and suffering. Isn't that exactly the kind of person and the kind of mission that you would expect to involve supernatural miracles? Here's here's an analogy for you. Today, when the Ravens win the AFC title, and when they win the Super Bowl, And then they do a parade through Baltimore City. Here's what I will expect from that. I will expect crowds and noise and confetti and police presence and the spectacular and crazy, right? But if you tell me that the Super Bowl champion Ravens are parading through Baltimore and I drive through empty and silent streets, I will not believe you, right? If if you tell me God has come to earth to save us and there's no supernatural, I wouldn't believe that. But Jesus working miracles is exactly what I would expect if he is who he said he is. So so let me just summarize all of that. The miracles of Jesus are not just supernatural lies or legends made up to mislead or motivate us. They are supernatural and rational historical events that are recorded to tell us what Jesus actually did. But unlike legends and heroes and myths and fables... The real actions of real humans, we all know this, are hardly ever simple, are they? They're complicated, they're nuanced, and very often unpredictable. So, I say that to say, if the miracles of Jesus were real, like we said, then we should also expect them to be, like the actions of all real humans, unpredictable. And that brings me to our third characteristic. So, we've seen the the miracles of Jesus are supernatural, they're historical and rational. Now, we're going to see that the miracles of Jesus are unpredictable. If you read through all of the miracle stories in Matthew's gospel, here's what you're going to find. Sometimes, like the story of the leper we read at the beginning, Jesus will heal with physical touch. Other times, he'll do it with just a word. Sometimes, he initiates the healing encounter, but sometimes someone else initiates it. Sometimes, he's very physically close to the person. Sometimes, he's at a very far distance from them. 
Sometimes He performs a miracle in response to great faith. Sometimes He does, he does the miracle despite the very smallness of their faith. Sometimes He marvels at the person that's receiving the miracle and He praises them, but other times He rebukes and He challenges them. And sometimes He does a lot of miracles, sometimes He does a few. Here's my point. Remember, I told you one of the primary goals through this teaching is to give you a lens through which you can understand any of Jesus' miracles. One key part of that lens is understanding that you can't fully understand Jesus. Not only did we just say He's a real human, and we all know the best of humans can surprise us and be unpredictable, but what we also know is He's God. And as God, His wisdom, His mind, His understanding is infinite. So in all of our efforts to understand Jesus' miracles, which is good, that's what we're doing, don't make the mistake of thinking that you can box Jesus in. Because as soon as you think you've got Him figured out, He'll surprise you. C.S. Lewis illustrated this idea really, really powerfully in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Near the middle of the story, you've got these three children that have been transported into the magical land of Narnia, and they're told that they're going to meet the lord of that land, who is a lion named Aslan. And of course, like all of us would be, they're a little nervous about meeting a lion. And so I want you to hear their conversation. Here's what they said. Oh, said Susan, I had thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. At the end of the book, Mr. Beaver elaborates on this. He says, one day you'll see Aslan, and another you won't. He doesn't like being tied down, but it's quite all right. He'll often drop in, only you mustn't press him. He's wild, you know, not like a tame lion. When we see Jesus doing miracles, of course we're reminded of how powerful and good He is, but we're also reminded that he, that he can't be tied down. He's not a domesticated pet who will come and go and bark and jump at our commands. He's not a tame lion. He's a wild one in the most beautiful sense of that word. He's majestic and free and mighty. And believe it or not, that is exactly the kind of Savior that we need and exactly the kind of Savior that we really want when we find ourselves scared and confused and powerless. We don't need a Savior in that moment whose every move we can predict and understand. We need one whose actions and wisdom far exceed our own. So Jesus' miracles are unpredictable. But don't misunderstand me. I don't mean that to say that we can't understand them at all or that they have nothing in common. So let's, I told you when we get to this fourth characteristic, let's descend a little bit here, start talking about a little more concrete things while we look at this fourth characteristic, which is the miracles of Jesus are meaningful. So, so far, supernatural, historical and rational, unpredictable, but now the miracles of Jesus are meaningful. If you read through the Gospel of Matthew, which I'm saying a lot, so subliminal message, maybe you should read through the Gospel of Matthew. Another thing you're going to notice is that Jesus never does a miracle, never does a miracle simply as a raw display of power or as spectacle or just for fun. He even refuses to do miracles on command to prove who He is to people who doubt Him. He refuses to do that. What, what we see instead is that all of Jesus' miracles always, always, always have a purpose. They always have a clear and meaningful answer to the question, why? Why are you doing this? So again, to help equip you to understand any of His miracles, what I want to do now just for the next few minutes is give you a list of five questions that you can ask of any of Jesus' miracles that will help you understand the meaning and purpose of those miracles. The, the first four questions um, we'll, we'll kind of go through quickly because the whole point is to give them to you, not to answer every single question you have. So I'll give you those first four pretty quickly, and then we're going to linger on the fifth. So these are five questions or five eyes. You'll see what I mean by that. 
that help you understand the meaning of Jesus' miracles. Question number one that you can ask, what immediate need is being met by this miracle? What immediate need? That, that's the most basic foundational thing we can ask. Before we wonder what any other purpose Jesus might have had, we should remember He was meeting real people's real immediate needs. And, and all we have to do to see that is go back to our runway passage in Matthew 8. A leper came to Jesus for healing, and He came to Jesus for healing because He's a leper, right? He, he's, he's physically in pain. He's got a physical disease. He's socially ostracized. He needs His immediate problem, leprosy, immediately taken away. And that's what Jesus does for him. He meets his immediate need. And we can ask that question, what immediate need does this meet of any of the gospel, any of the, excuse me, miracle stories? Question number two, what idea, now you see why I'm saying eyes, what idea is being taught by this specific miracle? So, so many of Jesus' miracles are meant to be acted out parables. And, and what I mean by that, in other words, he really did perform a miracle. They're not just metaphors. And he really was meeting somebody's immediate need. But underneath that, at the same time, he was also teaching the people an important lesson that they needed to learn. And maybe the clearest story you can see this in is the feeding, the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. So we're told in, in Matthew's gospel, he fed these hungry people because he had compassion on them. He didn't want them to leave and faint. He wanted to meet their immediate need. But if you go a little further in Matthew 16, 9 through 11, listen to what he tells his disciples about that miracle. Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So, so Jesus has miraculously fed the multitudes to meet their need, but He also has done it to teach His disciples a deeper idea, a deeper lesson about these sinful religious leaders. And you, again, you could ask this question, what idea is being taught really of any of Jesus's miracles? Question number three, which iniquities need to be repented of? Which iniquities or which sins need to be repented of in light of this miracle? And, and what I mean by that is not that Jesus, you know, mainly did miracles for a specific person because He knew some specific sin in their life needed to be repented of. That's not what I mean. In Matthew chapter 3, the very beginning of the gospel, we're told that Jesus went out and preached a message of repentance. Repent for the kingdom of God's at hand. That was the core of His message. The, the miracles He did were the evidence that His message had authority. Like, look, this guy knows what He's talking about. He actually has the power to talk about what He's talking about. You should actually listen and begin searching your life for sins you should repent of. So, Matthew chapter 11, again, verse 21, Jesus says this, "'Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes.'" Miracles should lead to repentance, so we should be asking that question. Question number four, which part of Jesus's identity is being revealed? So, so when Jesus came to earth, he, he could have just come out and told everybody, hey, I'm God, and I'm here to save you. But had he done that, those claims by themselves would have resulted in one of two things. Either he would have gotten laughed out of town or more likely executed way ahead of schedule. So, so the miracles, though, through the working of the miracles, his claims of who he was became a lot harder to dismiss, and his identity became clearer and more compelling. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus calms this storm at sea. And when he does that, the disciples look at each other and say, what sort of man is this? What's his identity? 
Now, fast forward to Matthew 14. Jesus walks on that same sea. He calms the waves again, and this time the disciples say, truly, you are the Son of God. So, the miracles have helped them begin to grasp more deeply His identity. But now, question number five, and I told you this is what I would consider the most important question you can ask of any of Jesus' miracles. Number five, how do we see in the miracle, how do we see the inbreaking of God's kingdom? The reason I say this is the most important question out of all of them is because in at least 10 out of the 25 or so miracle passages in the Gospel of Matthew, so that's a little more than a third, there is some sort of reference to Jesus as king and the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me, before we go too far, let me define our terms. Kingdom of God is not referring to like a geographical territory, like, like we would think of like a place with a castle. That's not what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is the living and active reign and rule of God. It's not tied down to a specific location. It's the living and active reign and rule of God. So, so the Old Testament prophets foretold about a time in the future when God Himself would come down to earth demolish all the evil forces, and establish His perfect rule and reign over all the nations. And He would do it through a man that He chose and anointed. That's where we get the terms Christ and Messiah. He would do it through a man He chose and anointed from the kingly line of David. And that's why Jesus is not only called the Son of God when He does miracles, He's also called the Son of David. You'll hear people say, Son of David have mercy on me. That's also why, if you'll remember back to our Christmas series, Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy where where he traces Jesus' ancestry back to David. The point is clear. Here's what Matthew wants us to hear. Jesus is the promised son of David, Messiah King, who brings God's kingdom on earth. Fantastic. But there were other people who claimed to be that. How do we know Jesus really is the one? You have to go back to Matthew 11. I read this to you earlier. Remember John the Baptist's question to Jesus? John the Baptist was in prison, about to have his head cut off. And so, understandably, he's a little concerned and confused. Hey, Jesus, cousin, are you the one who is to come? And, and when he says that, he's talking about this promised son of David, King Messiah. Are you the guy or are you not? And do you remember how Jesus responded to him? In Matthew 11, verses 4 through 5, he responded to him by pointing to his miracles. I'll read it to you again. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And that's actually a quote from a prophecy in Isaiah about the coming kingdom. So so one of the most important purposes behind all of Jesus' miracles was to display that Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy and all the others about the kingdom. He is the king who's come to bring God's rule and reign. And the miracles He does are proof of that. They are displays of what that kingdom looked like. Under under God's perfect rule and reign, there are no more evil forces, no more sickness and pain and disability, no more mental illness, no more hunger, no more poverty, and no more chaotic, out-of-control forces of nature to fear. But obviously, those things are still around. Even in the lifetime of Jesus, as great and numerous as His miracles were, Not everybody was healed, not everybody was raised from the dead, and even those that were eventually died again. Not every storm was stilled, not every hungry belly was fed, not every taxpayer got to find a coin in a fish's mouth. So what gives? If Jesus is the king who's brought the kingdom, 
and his miracles are a display of that kingdom, then why is there still evil, sickness, and suffering? Why doesn't everyone get the miracle they need? And that's a heavy question. And there may be lots of individual answers to that. Let me give you one big biblical answer. In Matthew's gospel, in some places, Jesus will speak of the kingdom as something that is already a present reality. He'll use phrases like the kingdom of God is drawn near, the kingdom of God is upon us. But in other places, he will talk about the kingdom like it's a future thing still to come. So he will famously teach his disciples to pray, let your kingdom come. So which is it? Has it come or is it still yet to come? And the answer is yes. You've been trained well. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom of God has broken into this world, but it has not yet filled up this world. I'll say that one more time. Through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God has broken into this world, but it hasn't yet filled up this world. Here's a way to think about it. D-Day is widely considered a major turning point in World War II. If you're not familiar with what that is, if you're not a history buff, that's the day on June the 6th, 1944, made famous in the opening scenes of Saving Private Ryan, when Allied forces led by England and America landed on the beaches of Normandy and they began their invasion of Nazi Germany. Now, looking back now, historians will tell us that 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 was really the beginning of the end for the Nazis. It, It really was a spectacular thing. It really was true liberation for a lot of people, but it wasn't complete. And it wouldn't be complete until over a year later on V-Day, Victory Day. When, when Jesus first came and did miracles, that was, that was D-Day. His kingdom now has invaded. It's broken in. It's marching forward. The enemy's defeated. The enemy's on the run. But the war still rages. And the war's not over. And people still get wounded. And some recover. And some don't. But here's the promise that Victory Day is coming. The question, though, is how do we know that? How can, we, how can we be confident that the in-breaking kingdom of God will one day fill up the entire world and drive out all the forces of evil, sickness, suffering, and death? How can we be confident of that? Matthew gives us the answer in chapter 8, verses 16 through 17. I want you to hear what he said. That evening, they brought to Jesus many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. This, talking about the miracles he just mentioned, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So here again is another place where we're told that Jesus' miracles are a fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah. But this time I want you to see that quote that he uses from Isaiah. I want you to see it in its original context. He's pulling it out of Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6. Let me read you the entire little passage there. Surely... He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's the quote Matthew used. Those words, griefs and sorrows, can also be translated illnesses and diseases and suffering. So, so he has borne our griefs and sorrows and illnesses and diseases, but listen to the rest. Yet we esteemed, esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The question I want you to ask yourself is why does Isaiah move at the beginning from talking about Jesus bearing our griefs and sorrows and illnesses and diseases to at the end talking about him bearing our iniquities and sins? 
What Isaiah and Matthew are trying to teach us is that in order for Jesus to truly pick up and carry away forever our griefs and sorrows and illnesses and diseases, underneath those things, Jesus first had to pick up and carry our sins. And where did He carry those things? Isaiah is pretty clear about it, to the cross where He was pierced and crushed and chastised and wounded in our place to bring us complete healing, first spiritually and then physically. You see, what, what Isaiah and Matthew are teaching us here is something that really goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, that, that humanity's sin, my sin and your sin, our rebellion against the loving rule of our Creator, is that, that's what invited the forces of evil and suffering and death into this world in the first place. So since I'm using military metaphors, you, you might think of it as sin is the commander and his armies are evil, suffering, sickness, and death. By bearing our sins to the cross and on the cross, Jesus conquered the commander. He conquered sin, and now its armies are defeated and on the run, and it's only a matter of time before they're finally driven out completely. Jesus' victory on the cross over sin is how we know that final victory over suffering, sickness, and death is certain. Jesus' miracles are pointers to the final kingdom and evidence that it's already broken into this world. So the most important question you can ask of any of Jesus' miracles is how do, we how do we see in those miracles the display of the inbreaking of God's kingdom? I'm going to go ahead and call the worship team up as we kind of wind things down here. So we've done a, a lot of talking over the last few minutes of, of, of the whys and the hows of miracles, what, what you might call like the theory of miracles. But now it's time to move from theory to reality. If you're here this morning or if you're listening online and you need a miracle today, if I were sitting in your seat, I'd probably be wondering, what do you want me to do? So you've just spent all this time telling me that Jesus' supernatural miracles are real and they're, they're rational and reasonable to believe in, but, but, but then you've also told me that they're unpredictable and, and they're just foretastes of an inbreaking kingdom that's not fully here yet. So where does that leave me? If I need a miracle today, what should I do? And I think the best answer that I can give you with the time we have left is to do what I told you, which is go back where we started. So we, we finished our flyover. We're going to land now back on our runway, Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Remember, in that little story, a leper approaches Jesus, asks for healing, and he gets healed. But I want you to hear how that leper approached Jesus. One more time, listen to how he approached Jesus. Matthew chapter 8, verse 2. Here's what we're told. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So if you're here and you need a miracle from Jesus, that's what you should do. You come to him, you come to Jesus, you humble yourself before him, and what you say to him is, if you will, I know you can. If you will, I know you can. I know you're able. Will you? And you do what Jesus said. You keep coming, and you keep asking, you keep seeking, and you keep knocking. If you will, I know you can. But if at the last, Jesus says, do you know my child? Not this time. Then... You have to remember that although he's not tame, he's good. And you can trust his heart. Which I realize for some people listening to me right now sounds very trite. 
Trust his heart. Trust his heart. How do you, how do you trust his heart when he refuses to do a miracle you so desperately need and desire? And let me tell you, that pushback doesn't fall on deaf ears. I've paced the hallways of the ER on the phone with my grandmother, the most faith-filled woman I've ever known. She saw miracles. I've been on the phone with her in the ER, and, and, and together we have prayed through sobbing tears, begging God, begging God that he would let my mom live in the room next to us. Just please don't let her die because the doctors have come, and they've told me and my dad and my brother she's not coming out of this coma. And so we prayed and we begged and we begged and we cried and, and he didn't do it. He didn't do it. So I, I had to go back in that room and I had to kneel beside her lifeless body and I had to caress her head and I had to say goodbye. And I thought I was a pretty strong Christian at that point, but I, I can remember saying, I can remember saying all this stuff I believe, it had better be real. So how, how can you trust his heart? when he refuses to do a miracle you so desperately desire? Here's the answer. You remember that he refused to do a miracle that he desperately desired. In Matthew chapter 26, just hours before he was crucified, Jesus told his disciples, he said, I I could call on tens of thousands of angels to come and rescue me. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the miracle of miracles? Nobody would deny him then, but Jesus refused to do that miracle for himself because saving himself would mean losing us. So if Jesus tells you no to the miracle you so desperately need, you can trust his heart because he didn't just carry your sufferings for a little while to give you temporary relief and then just give up. He carried your sufferings all the way to the cross to give you eternal relief, and he never gave up. And three days after he refused himself that one miracle, he got a greater miracle. He rose from the dead never to die again. And now he promises to do the same for everyone who trusts in him on victory day. I lost my mom, but on victory day, I will see her glorified forever and ever. So, so again, if, if you're here and you need a miracle, you come to Jesus, you remember his great love for you displayed on the cross, you remember his promise he's made for your future, you believe in his power, you trust his heart, and you say to him, if you will, you can, because you're the one we've waited for. Let's bow your heads and close your eyes. Let me pray with you. So I told the 9 a.m. this. There's only one way to end a teaching like this. I'm going to do something I hardly ever do. If you're here and you need a miracle today, whatever that might be, physical healing, maybe mental anxiety, maybe it's an addiction, maybe it's relational, maybe your marriage is in trouble or you've got issues with your kids, or maybe it's financial, you need a job or you're just struggling. Whatever miracle you need, with every, every head bowed and every eye closed, as a sign of faith, I'm just asking you to raise your hand so I can pray over you. It's a sign of faith. Thank you. Thank you. You know, when... When the blind men wanted Jesus to heal them, they said, Son of David, have mercy on us. And people told them, be quiet, don't bother him. And they said, no. Son of David, have mercy on us. They kept pressing in. So I thank you for raising your hand as a sign of faith. I want to pray over you. And what we're going to pray is, if you will, you can. I believe in your power. Help me to trust your heart. Heavenly Father, I pray over all these people that raised their hand who who would say in faith, they're taking a step of faith, they're putting themselves out there saying, I need a miracle today. 
my prayer as you've taught us to pray before Jesus, your son, is if you will, we know you can. We know that you're able. We know you still do miracles. Will you do it? Will you please perform miracles for these people? If it's physical healing, heal them. If it's freedom from some kind of addiction or some kind of, you know, anxiety or just free them. If it's a new job, give it to them. God, if it's a relationship restored, restore it. We don't ask this in our own names, but we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, who didn't just carry our sufferings for a little while, but carried them all the way to the cross. We pray we're asking you to give us a foretaste of that final kingdom. And in the meantime, if you tell us no, we're asking that you'd give us faith to trust your heart, to look to the cross, to look to the empty tomb and be reminded that victory day is coming. Give us strength to keep holding on until then. Thank you. Thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for pouring yourself out to rescue us completely. We ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.